and our investors at that point were just ourselves and my father-in-law that I had convinced to give me 50 grand to go do that deal and a bank um, that we had convinced to lend us money on our first job. So that's that was kind of how it took off. And that was that project and those returns really seeded Spartan Investment Group and, and enabled us to build the company. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by ecospace.com. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Adams, and we've got Scott Lewis on the air right with us right now. He's from Spartan Investment Group. We've talked to his partner before, and uh, what they're doing is remarkable. I wanted to bring Scott on. He actually uh, is in the business at a part, a different part of the business as our last guest, Ryan Gibson from the same group. You can reach out to Scott directly by uh, going to his email. It's scott at spartan-investors.com. Again, the the company is Spartan Investment Group, and they have a big emphasis on self-storage. So they've got a couple hundred units right now. There's uh, several hundred more being built right now. The main focus of Spartan Investment Group is the overall returns, the projected returns, mitigating downside, and being able to pass on great returns to their passive investors that go in alongside with them. Uh, one of the things I'm going to talk a little bit with Scott, because he's done both, um, you know, the, the self-storage units that are actually already going. So he's purchased them as cash flowing assets and he's also done development. So I want to kind of talk a little bit about some of those differences. But Scott, why don't you do me a favor and the listener, will you tell us a little bit about how you got into real estate? Sure. So it was, it started when I was in high school um, and I basically joined a framing crew building residential houses uh, for my summer money. That's kind of how I got into it from the uh, operational side of the house. Uh, the investment side of the house, I did it by accident because like a lot of listeners out there, I bought a condo in Chicago in 2005, which Felt like a fantastic uh, idea at the time in 2005. However, fast forward to 2006 and 2007 and my fantastic idea did not turn out so well. So I was joining the military at that time. I basically dropped everything I knew and I, I, I joined the military. So I was leaving Chicago, but I still had this condo uh, that I had bought in 2005 and now it was 2007. And I didn't really want to sell it for a loss. So I just said, screw it, I'll rent it out. Um, I, I still have that, I'm not gonna call it an asset, I'll call it a thing uh, today. And I've had the same tenant in there and she's fantastic. I've had the same tenant in there for uh, going on 10 years now and she's a fantastic tenant because she pays her rent on time and I return the favor and I've not raised rents on her in 10, in 10 years. So the multifamily investors out there are probably rolling over in their grave thinking like, how can I, not raise rents for 10 years. But uh, again, that was my, that was my first investment. Uh, and, and it's done okay. I'm, I'm still not whole yet there, but it's on its way back and I haven't lost anything. So that was kind of my first getting into it. And then from the development side, um, Ryan and I, as you mentioned earlier, we lived on the same street inside uh, Capitol Hill in the District of Columbia. And in between our two row houses was a really, really rundown house. And my wife said to me one day, she's, she said, well, you need to figure that out. And I just kind of looked at her and be like, what do you mean by that? And she said, that house, like figure it out, go buy it. Well, I didn't know how to do it. So we just kind of figured it out. And that was our first deal. And that was our first, 
kind of foray into our philosophy for doing very, very thick deals, but just very few. That was 140% return to our investors um, over about a 19 month timeline. And our investors at that point were just ourselves and my father-in-law that I had convinced to give me 50 grand to go do that deal and a bank um, that we had convinced to lend us money on our first job. So that's that was kind of how it took off. And that was that project and those returns really seeded Spartan Investment Group and, and enabled us to build the company. What year was that with the house that was the row house that you said it took about 19 months with your dad as an investor? Yeah, so we got it in 2013. Uh, we had to do what's called a quiet title. There were all kinds of problems with the chain of title, so we couldn't sell it. Um, so we we actually got it in March of 2013. Found out it had some title problems. No big deal. Um, we had no idea what we were doing, but that's kind of our our marquee is not knowing what we're doing, but getting the people on our team who do, and then figuring it out. So we went through a quiet title process, which basically issues a brand new title for the property. That took about 10 months in the courts. Um, that took us into 2014, and we finished that project up in, in some time in 2014. Wow, okay, great. So 10 of those months were just quieting the title? Yep. Okay, good deal. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Let me go in and just see what questions I can ask because there's so many ways to take this, Scott. Uh, I like all of the investments that you guys have been doing. First off, I know um, I was with Ryan and I actually visited one of your self-storage units up in Conifer. Um, I, I actually live about two miles from there. So um, we were on site and we just did a Facebook Live and shared with some of my friends what you guys have been doing. And a lot of people were asking different questions. So first off, let me ask you this. On that specific deal, it's there's about a hundred or so units right now, and then you're you're probably going to be building on the back, right? We are. We're going to be adding somewhere depending on um, how lucky we are with setbacks and that kind of stuff between eight and ten thousand square feet. And we don't have our unit mix. We're probably going to add um, our unit mix will probably be uh, somewhere in the hundred and ten square foot average. So you know somewhere between eighty to a hundred more units coming up back there. Okay, good deal. So let me ask you a couple questions on, on that. Let's talk numbers. Let's talk a little bit about what was the cap rate going in. I'll be completely honest. I'm, I'm for Spartan Investment Group. I'm the CEO. I've got a director of finance. I have no idea what those numbers were. Okay. Um, I don't run our numbers. Our director of finance does. Um, okay. I, I think it was in the mid sevens if I, if I had to guess. Cool. Uh, mid sevens is awesome. Um, so let me ask you this, uh, and I'm the same in my company. Uh, we have a few different di roles and I'm really the only one who focuses on podcasting. So no one else on my team needs to know, you know, how many episodes or how many downloads per episode we have or anything like that. And, and it's the same with the underwriting. There's someone else that focuses on the underwriting of the property. So I might not always have all the answers. And I think that that's a, a really good thing to just to touch on for the listener is that to really do this business and by this business, I mean any business to really do a business it is much harder if you're wearing all the hats. So if, if uh, Ryan and Scott were each, each of them were trying to do every single thing, it, it would just be redundant and it'd just be pointless to have that many people wearing that many hats or, and Ben, I forgot to mention your Ben Lapidus, right? 
Yeah, so he's, he's actually a director of finance and acquisitions, and he does all of our financial underwriting and analysis. And we've given him uh, constraints, I'll say. Uh, he, he would definitely call them constraints as to what we purchase and, and what the underwriting has to look like. And we actually have um, internally a cap rate matrix that basically says it, it analyzes a facility and then it produces a, a cap rate of what it should be at based on our analysis that we use to then compare to what the offering is out there. And the it's Aspen Park self-storage is what you're re referring to. And th this one was an off-market deal. It came from our direct letter campaign and we were dealing directly with the owner here. So the, there really wasn't any marketing material. There was no marketed cap rate. Um, the negotiation took a while. Um, the owner, uh, great guy, he's an army vet. And I, I think that's why he called us because I'm a vet too. And um, we, we just had, we, we, we established a really good relationship with him. We still do. He sell or finance the property. And um, it's been a great, it's been a great purchase, uh, really good learning experience for us because it's an unmanned facility. So we don't actually have any management on site. Okay. Well, what does that look like? If it's unmanned, um, do you not need to have a manager going to there, going to the facility to unlock different units? So there's a, there's a rough heuristic in the storage industry that um, facilities under 40,000 square feet generally won't have the financials to support a full-time manager. So we have a part-time part -time maintenance person that goes there and unlocks the units um, and, and cleans out the units and does yard work and whatever. And we do have to make occasional trips down there. I go down there, you know, about we're, we're installing some new technology right now. So it's about once every other week as we're, as we're standing up new remote technology as, as technology is supposed to help, but it never does in the beginning. But by the time we're done with the expansion, um, the locks will be automated, the gates automated. Uh, people can uh, book online, they can get their gate codes online. So we can do about 95% of all the stuff remotely. It's, it's incredibly hard to cut the grass remotely. So for that, we have a, uh, a maintenance guy that goes over there approximately five hours a week or so. Okay, good deal. Um, just on some of that information that you mentioned on what you can do remotely. And you said that you're really gearing up to having it be able to unlock the units for, for people remotely. Um, I know when we were there, we were looking at each of the doors and it looked like they had um, a connection, a ma magnetic connection that would show whether the door was open or closed. Um, is, is that accurate? Is that something that you're familiar with? Is, is that like an alarm system? That's exactly what it is. It's an alarm system based on pressure. And I think it's a pressure system. I'm not sure that it's magnetic, but I think it's pressure so that when a door is opened, uh, it, it takes the pressure off that system and then it trips an alarm. Um, it's a silent alarm and it just basically says our system, it, it logs in when somebody goes in and when they close their unit so we can track it. It's the same with the gate code. Most self-storage units, um, especially ones that are relatively new, uh, this one is not, but our owner was, was the previous owner was kind of pretty uh, forward thinking here and he was really focused on safety, which is why he installed fire alarms and uh, uh, security alarms in every single one of the units. Generally in a facility that was built, this one was built in the mid 90s. Um, the last phase was built in the mid nineties. Generally you don't see that in facilities like this, but our owner, this was his, 
He built it from, from day one when he acquired the first uh, plot of land in 1983 till when he sold it. I mean, this was, this was his baby. So he, he really took a good care of it and he did a really good job building it. Okay. And let me ask you this question. Well, first off, before I get there, what's your main role in Spartan Investment Group? I'm the CEO. So I mainly set the strategy and, and herd the cats, if you will. Okay, great. And as far as your involvement in the deals specifically, each of each of the deals, uh, what do you do for the team? Was it was it prior to getting the deals, just having a strategy, or when you're about to close them, or while you're managing them, or when you're about to dispose of a deal? Uh, what what is your role on on those parts acquisition management and disposal yeah good question so my role is mainly setting strategy up front and then i'm one of the ryan and i are the project managers inside the company so we really deal with any physical projects um i'll give you for instance at aspen park we're going to be adding eight to ten thousand square feet well i'm in charge of that project um, Ryan is tied up right now with closing down some residential deals in DC and then managing the project, uh, up North in Seattle with building the big facility up there. I'm also managing the projects down at our RV park in where we're expanding, adding additional spaces. And we just actually finished installing a propane dispensing station down there. So that's kind of my role is like strategy. And then, um, really the project side of the house for, for an acquisition. Okay. I have a question on the dispensing station on, was it propane? Yes. Right, just curious on, on that. Those are those, those propane tanks that people will come and, and they'll just fill up to be able to use like on their stoves and things like that. So we can, we actually have, so there's a couple types there's the, the swap out um, where it, the, the cylinder exchange, like you see at Home Depot, where you just bring your, your grill container, which is actually, it's called a 20 pound cylinder. Okay. Or you can actually go and you can fill your own tank. So we actually have a thousand gallon tank uh, on site and our managers are trained so they can go and fill up a, a propane tank. And that, that can be anywhere from, you know, the, the local fire department, bringing their grill tank in because they're, they're, they're hosting a barbecue in Texas. A lot of vehicles are powered by propane so they can come up and like filling up your car. Um, people can bring forklift cylinders in and fill those up RVs. They're all of their, um, you know, their, um, cooking utensils and their heat are powered by tanks. And those are somewhere between, you know, 30 and a hundred pounds. So we, we can fill basically any tank with propane. Cool. Um, and is that another money generator, revenue generator for you guys? Well, hopefully it's a big money generator. So awesome. we, we literally just got it live. It, it, it was not the smoothest process. I'll put it that way. Um, but we got it live last week and we're off to the races. We had, we had some turnover in our management staff. So we're waiting to get one uh, certified next, yeah, next week. She goes to class next week. And once we have two certified, we're going to turn on the full court press and really start marketing the propane down there. Okay. So uh, that means because you're working with some, you know, gas uh, that is flammable and 
just could be hazardous if you do did the wrong thing with it. You have to get a certification. So your employees get that certification. And when you have two employees that are certified that way, that's when you're able to turn on the business of filling up other people's propane tanks. It's not a requirement. It's we, we are filling right now. We're just mainly filling for our residents and kind of some local residents. We haven't turned on the big time marketing engine. We have an entire marketing campaign um, built out, like leveraging, you know, not only digital technologies, but also analog technologies with mailers and in your traditional marketing campaigns. We just didn't want to turn that on because one of the things that we'll admit that we had trouble with is assessing demand for propane out there. And what we don't want to do is... We, we, we don't want to turn into a propane business where we can't serve our customers and, and create the best RV park experience we can because that, that's what it is. It's an RV park and we're selling propane as an ancillary revenue source and a convenience to our guests. But ultimately, we don't want it to take away from the experience of our guests at the, at the RV park. So we're just managing it and being careful uh, so that we don't get our, we, so that we can manage success if it comes. That's cool. I like that. Thanks for letting me ask a few questions on that at that same RV park. So are you, you currently have guests there? Uh, it sounds like you currently have guests there right now, right? We do. We're completely full, 102. Okay. So 102 spaces, they're all full. What's the, just curious, remind me the city. It is Gardendale, Texas. So it is, it is just north of Odessa, Texas, kind of out in West Texas about I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to guess my geography of Texas is not perfect. So if there's a Texan, listen, I, I apologize. You're going to get mad at me, but it's probably <laughs> halfway in between uh, Austin and El Paso. Okay. Well, good, good deal. So it's all the way full. Now let me ask you, this is an RV park. Is this, how many of these RV parkers at the park are at, uh, are long-term tenants living out of the RVs? How many of them are recreationally just visiting for a few days? Um, can you give me an idea of, of like who's your client there? Yeah, it's funny. I just asked our director of operations that question because I was interested in it. So we have 30% long-term. We have zero recreational. Um, I, I'm a big fan of the Permian Basin. I love Texas. Um, and I, and I love that area. I would never go there to vacation and no, nobody else would. The people that go there are just like, you're, you're straight up hardworking American oil workers, um, who are there, uh, you know, supporting the oil boom that's going on right now is the, the U S is now the third largest supplier of oil in the world. Um, and a lot of it is coming out of the Permian basin, which is, that's where, uh, Midland Odessa is. Okay. So, so it's 30% long-term and 70% oil workers. Uh, it's, it's almost a hundred percent oil workers. Oh, okay. And the, the other 70% outside the, and 30% long-term we define as one year or longer. Um, so we do have some six monthers in there. We have some seven monthers. We have some three weekers. It just really depends. The, the oil workers that come through there, um, some of them are general laborers uh, that work in the rigs, and some of them are incredibly highly skilled folks that are that are only needed for a very small fraction. Of, for an interesting segue is we had a welder there that was certified to weld in, in explosive conditions, 
well, you don't have explosive conditions going on for very long. So he would come in and, and do whatever he did and then he would move on. So it, it wasn't, it, and it, we, we talked about his financials and I'm not going to put it out over here, but he was making like really far into six figures because he was a very, very highly specialized worker. However, he had no choice but to move wherever his contracts were taking him and his family. So that, that was kind of a, an insight for us that there, there's some, there's some fairly well compensated folks that are moving through here. They just, that's the nature of their jobs. This is extremely interesting to me. Thank you for going into it. So on, on that same line, okay, so 30% long-term, 70% short-term. Long-term is defined as one year plus, no recreational people, just 70% of them are also in the oil field, but they may be three weeks, they may be six months, seven months, but just not a full year. So the, the next question that, that I'm curious on uh, finding out from you is, what is the business plan when oil is is low? Like when they're really not supporting a lot of people at this RV park, what's the business plan during during that time? Yeah, so going back to my my first statement where you know, we, we don't do a lot of deals, we just we we make sure we've got lots of margin. This park can go down to 30% occupancy and still cover the debt service. Um, it, it, at 30%, it won't provide any returns. At 60% occupancy, we can uh, support the PREF to our investors. So for us, we, we, we really protected the downside here. We, we analyzed the various cycles that the Permian has gone through um, in the last, say, 50 years. And one of the interesting things we saw about the Permian, and I think this is just... It, it, goes back to you know not only the, the resiliency of Texans, but also their experience in oil over the years, is that the unemployment rate currently down there is probably approaching maybe a tenth of a percent. So almost zero. There is, there's, if, if there's a way to have negative unemployment, it, it's there for sure. Like we, we struggle to find anybody to work in our park. Um, so when we looked at the historicals, the, the worst that we saw in the Permian that we saw was five to seven percent unemployment. Well, I mean, some some cities during like the boom time right now are running at five to seven percent. So we really protected our downsides. We have multiple exit strategies. If we had to hold this thing, we could hold it indefinitely because we bought it. Um, we, we bought it with such good underwriting and such good fu uh, fundamentals that it. it you know, I mean, it, it, oil can go down to 20 bucks a barrel again, which it was in, you know, maybe 20, 24 bucks in, in late 2015, early 2016. It got pretty low down there um, and we'd still be okay. Cool. I like that a lot. So I want to move into just maybe asking a little bit of questions between what it's like to build from scratch a self-storage unit facility versus what it's like to kind of take over one that's already in place. But we let's take a short break and then we'll be right back. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Ecospace Real Estate. Ecospace is a Denver, Colorado-based real estate company with a national reach. They provide a unique offering called Flip Your Home, where they utilize their own internal fix and flip crews to flip their clients' homes Prior listings. Their brokerage clients gain on average twenty three thousand of instant equity, which is then taken one hundred percent tax free. If you'd like to learn more about gaining additional tax free equity in your home prior to listing, 
then please visit ecospace.com. All right, my friend, we are back and just wanted to find out a little bit more because uh, I know you're building 800 units right now. Um, what is it like to basically teach us from start to finish kind of the, the high level view of what it is like to find an area, figure out if they need storage units, permit for the storage units, place them on, and then get them, you know, and get them funded. If, if, you, if you can, just kind of walk us through what that, what that takes. Yeah, good deal. So I can, I can walk you through up to the permitting. We, this is our first build from the ground up. So I can just walk the listeners through what we've done so far. We, we haven't experienced a lease up yet, which will be a learning opportunity for us okay. once, we're, once we're completed. But I can talk about the identification um, you know, of the location. I can talk about the funding of the deal. I can talk, talk about um, going through the special use permitting, which is the, which is the really risky part. The building permits for self-storage really aren't any different than building permits for anything else. Um, and, and really, when you look at development, it's, it's a concept um, that can be applied to basically any class. When you look at development, it can be broken down into really kind of two phases. The horizontal phase, which is basically a paperwork dance to get all the way through your entitlements, to get through um, you know, any, any public objections, and to get through your building permits. Once you have a building permit, then you can enter the, the vertical phase, which is when you start moving dirt and you start going up. Um, developers will differ when that, that horizontal vertical transitions. Some will say that it transitions when you get the building permit. Some will say it transitions once you get your dirt cleared and your, all of your infrastructure poured. We are in the, the latter camp. For us, the horizontal risk ends when all of your concrete is poured because during the in between building permit and actually pouring concrete, if you go out there and you disturb dirt and you find some Indian bones, it's game over. Or if you know a Velociraptor from Jurassic Park decided to take a you know a nap on your on your dirt millions of years ago, you're, I mean you're going to get shut down. So there's still a, all kinds of risk in the horizontal phase until you get your uh, your site prepped and ready to go vertical. So for for the sake of your listeners. Um, at Spartan Investment Group, we say the horizontal goes all the way through uh, when the last drop of concrete's poured and we start going north uh, with the vertical. Very, very interesting. So, and then you cut off, just so you know, you cut out just a little bit. And I think I heard what you said, though. You said the horizontal is basically the paperwork dance. Is that right? Yeah. So, some, some folks will, some developers will say that, the, that it basically, that's what it is. It's, it's shuffling papers around. Um, doing plans, doing concepts, um, you know, basically aligning interests both within government agencies. Um, you know, if you if you get touched with state or federal, local agencies, local politicians, local, uh, I guess, councilmen or politicians, but uh, local owners, um, neighbors, and basically all of the stakeholders that are part of it. Um, so it's it's really about you know, getting all of your documentation in a row and aligning interest so that your project gets supported. Now, that's especially important if it's not what's called a matter of right project. So if the zoning in at your particular parcel does not allow for what you want it to do, it's not a, it's not a catastrophic problem. You can always change the zoning. It just is, 
it's in the process is different for every jurisdiction. So I can't really talk about the process because um, every jurisdiction has their little nuances. But at the end of the day, the, the concept is you have to prove to the jurisdiction and that jurisdiction being the local government office and then any citizens or other stakeholders that come out of the woodwork to either um, support or oppose your project that what you want to do is in the best interest. And, and we actually had that for our, our self storage up in uh, Black Diamond, Washington, because our, the, the parcel of dirt was not zoned for it. It was a, con I, well, let me caveat that. It was not a matter of right. The zoning code allowed for a conditional use for self storage. However, it was conditional and it was, a, it was based on public support and a hearing examiner's ruling. So there's, there's a lot of risk in that kind of stuff. Okay. And you mentioned something earlier where you said the horizontal doesn't stop until not just the permits and moving of dirt, but you really said it, it doesn't really stop until after the last drop of concrete's poured. And you used a couple of examples. You said it's because there could be um, an Indian burial ground or there could be a dinosaur uh, that was there millions of years ago and happens to still have his bones there. So can I ask you, from your from what you've researched and from what you've kind of planned on, if you come up across those things, what, um, what happens then? I mean, I suppose if you found dinosaur bones, would you, I mean, get to sell them to museums or does that become property of the city? So I'm, I'm, I've never been in that situation. I'm, I'm fairly certain that selling dinosaur bones, um, I, I don't know that there's a, a market for dinosaur bones. I don't, I'll, I'll be completely honest. I don't know what would happen. And, and as every developer will tell you, we do everything in our power to try to like make sure through records, scrubs, through any type of research that you can, that you don't run into those. I mean, obviously you can't scan for dinosaur bones, but for, for some of the other things like burial grounds or, uh, invasive or another big one that can get developers tripped up is uh, protected species and whether that's an endangered plant or an endangered creep like critter um, there's ways to we there's there's you can hire a biologist to do a study on the land to determine if there's any endangered um, critters or plants on your property and we actually did that so we had on our property, we hired a biologist right away because we saw that we have uh, wetlands and wetlands are federally protected waters of the United States. Okay. So for that, you, you definitely, there's, there's a lot of uh, subsequent steps that you have to go through when you have some sort of protected class of, I'll say thing, because it, it, there's a number of them. And as you're doing the development, you just have to go through various gates to eliminate the risks associated with those. And it's just by paying professionals to come out there and eliminate the, the risk of that kind of one step at a time. Okay, gotcha. So the question that I think is on everybody's mind about whether you're going to build your own self-storage unit or whether you're going to take over somebody's, uh, is the reason why you do one or the other based on either safety or the how high the returns can be Th that's my question to you is it because maybe do you build it because the returns are higher or do you buy them when they're already cash flowing because it is a 
kind of like a surefire thing. You can go off of a T12 and information like that. I mean, fill in the blanks, but you, I think you know what I'm asking. I, I do. And I think it starts with the, the individual or the team. So with development, you've got to be flexible, adaptable, and resilient. So you, you've got to be able to adapt to whatever's thrown at you, resilient for when you get punched in the face, and then flexible enough to kind of think on your feet. I, I give a talk about the ethos of a real estate warrior, and I really kind of talk about the, the trifecta of uh, kind of, I'll say personal traits, but team traits that you have to have in order to do development. Um, if your team doesn't have those traits, then you know going the development route can be hugely risky. Um, like anything else, the, the the reward is on par with the risk. And from raw land development, there's a lot of risk in it. There's a lot of different stakeholders in and managing those stakeholders if you don't do it well. Ryan is a master of stakeholder management. He's just like he's he's one of the best I've ever seen at managing the various stakeholder group and navigating that terrain where I am like really flexible and adaptable and able to think on my feet. Not that Ryan is, but when you look at us as a team, our strengths are Ryan's ability to uh, navigate a thorny political area where if I tried that, it'd be like a bull in a China shop versus my like very analytical say no to everything, like mitigate every risk. We, we, we do nothing. We just stand and stare at a wall the whole time. So that's why the partnership works for us, at, at least at our, at our chief officer level. But then we've got a really good team below us who we've got a director of business intelligence who comes from the real intelligence industry and has a very, very detailed, um, not detailed, very, very uh, expansive skill sets and being able to analyze risk and, and just do general analysis on a particular deal. And then we've got Ben, our director of acquisition, our director of finance that does really good underwriting. So for us, we've got a team that is built up and I'm, I'm leaving the director of operations out because she really comes in kind of once we hand her the facility and she's got really good planning skills so that when we hand her a facility, the business plan is already in place to, to go and, and do what we need to do for that particular facility. Okay. So your question, the, the returns are really big, but that's, that's not why we do it. We, we do it because we have the team that has the abilities to navigate the, the minefield of development. Okay. So first off, what is a stakeholder so that I, I know right where you are. What is a stakeholder specifically? It's someone who has a vested interest to see you succeed or fail. Um, for instance, we had uh, a, a good example of a stakeholder is the neighbor that is immediately adjacent to our property. So we, that, that neighbors are always a stakeholder group that you need to engage in. And before our project even went live, and there's some risk in doing this, um, and engaging the neighbors before your project really kind of gets legs. There's some developers out there that may tell us that we're going the wrong direction. However, in our experience, engaging the neighbors early and getting them bought into the project and, and hearing out their concerns has been hugely beneficial to us. So we, right away, we engaged the neighbors there and we uncovered that there was one neighbor that was incredibly worried about the type of trees that we were gonna put for our screen. And we hadn't even thought about that because really for us, we, we really don't have a vested interest in what type of trees we were playing. I, I mean, if the, this person wanted some super expensive trees imported from the moon, well then, yeah, we probably would have had a problem with it. But this person just, he, he really loved cypress trees and he asked if we could put cypress trees there. And we went to our biologist and we said, well, hey, will a cypress tree live here? 
And he said, yeah. And we asked, well, are they expensive? And he's like, well, no more than other trees. So in, in the flick of an eye, we went back to him and said, yeah, we can put cypress trees there. No problem. Okay. That makes sense. So that ad, that potential adversary, because we have to have public hearings, right? So the, the, the local citizenry can come out and speak out against your project. So that person actually came out in support of our project and said that he's been in the building industry for years. And this was the first time a developer came to him first before they found out through some other means and told him that we were developing there. And not only did we tell him, we heard out his concerns. And when his concerns didn't, didn't hugely negative impact our projects, we agreed to it. I mean, it was so simple. It was just part of our mission to, is to improve lives through real estate. And if we can give this guy a view that he wants using Cypress trees, why, why would we not do that? So that, that's, that's an example of a stakeholder. Okay. And then uh, remind me, go through the trifecta. Just what are the three things included so I can make a note of it? Flexibility, adaptability, and resilience. Okay, flexibility, adaptability, and resilience. And are these the ethos of a real estate warrior or is that something else? That's part of them. Okay, and go 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 in, uh, what are the other ethos then? According to Spartan Investment Group, the, the developer's ethos is number one, I have a plan backed up by processes and systems. Number two, I hire awesome teams, I have backups, and I fire fast. Number three, I believe there is no such thing as too much due diligence. Number four, I am prepared to get punched in the face. And number five, I will never quit. All right, I'm making notes right now. Not, never too much due diligence. I can get punched in the face. Punched in face. And then the last one you said, the fifth one was never quit? Yep, I will never quit. Awesome. All right, so just to go over it one more time, I have a backup plan with processes and systems. Number two, I've got a team with backups and I fire fast. And number three, there's never too much due diligence. Number four, I can get punched in the face. Number five, I will never quit. The, the only the slight nuance for number one is I have a plan backed up by processes and systems. Backed up. Okay, good, good, good. Thank you. Awesome. Good stuff. I like that. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show. And will you do me this favor? Will you do all of us this favor? Before we find out how to reach out to you, will you give us your best advice if we're trying to get into this business? So by this business, uh, we, we talked a lot about uh, development on this one. So I'll, I'll, I'll kind of take at it from that lens. Great. The, the number one thing to, to kind of learn about development is how to mitigate your risk. Um, now, now that sounds like, well, I mean, you got to mitigate risk and everything. There's, there's infinitely more risk in developing a raw piece of dirt than, than there is over taking an existing facility. Because at the end of the day, if you take over an existing facility, you got something. Generally, you have four walls. I mean, even at our RV park, we have an office with four walls, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're, when you're looking at development, it's really about understanding how to mitigate the various risks that are, develop, that are uh, associated with development. And so the number one thing is to, to, before you start, whatever source you can find, whether it's a digital source, whether it's your, you know, your, your uncle that was a developer, or your buddy's uncle, or you go to real estate meetups, 
spend some time learning the development process. It, while the intricate steps differ from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, the overall concept of the horizontal development of going from you know, a piece of dirt with nothing to where you've got a slab poured ready to put boards, metal, whatever you're going north with, um, that process is very, very similar um, at a high level. So at least to understand that process so that you have a, a, a general understanding of where to ask questions and what buckets, that's the most important thing before you get started in development. Awesome. Scott Lewis, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for talking to us about the ethos of a RE warrior, warrior, the trifecta, and a lot of the things that your company has been doing recently. Uh, it was fun to talk about the team with Ryan, uh, uh, ben with yourself as a project manager the ceo and strategy who works on the business for spartan investment group i really really do appreciate your time if you want to reach out to scott just go to just go ahead and email him at scott at spartan-investors.com that's per, plural plus if you just want to go to the website the website is spartan S-P-A-R-T-A-N-investors.com. And I'll actually have that in the show notes as well. All right, Scott, is there anything else you want to leave with the listener? No, I, I think, Adam, I really appreciate you uh, having me on the show. And I, I really appreciate the, the wandering nature of this to allow us to kind of get into a bunch of different things. I think your, your listeners really benefit from that and can learn a lot from the show. I appreciate you pointing that out. And until next time, my friend, think outside the box. Thank you so much for listening to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. And if you got value from this episode of the podcast, please take the time to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Give us a written rating and a review. We'd really, really appreciate it. I'm going to let you go. But until next time, think outside the box.